Welcome back to the God's Story podcast, episode 8, and we continue on with Hebrews chapter 4 and into Hebrews chapter 5 to verse 10. Uh, I'm Brent Siddle, and I'm joined once again by Rido, the Reverend Ian Reed of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. Ian, welcome back to the show. Hi, Brent. How are you today? I'm all right yourself. I can't complain. Good. Very good. Last time, Ian, we were looking at the idea of rest and of entering into God's rest. How did the author of Hebrews describe that? Well, it's something still to come. Uh, but the idea, the picture that we get uh, is of the, the people uh, in the Old Testament uh, waiting on the edge of the promised land, the people that have been brought out of slavery. They're waiting on the promised land. Uh, to, and they're looking in and peering in and God's saying, hey, go in. Uh, but they fail to go in because they don't believe. And that's the same picture that we're given here, is that we are standing on the edge of the promised land, on the edge of what God is doing for us, uh, and we stand on the edge. And uh, the the thing that we, we need to do is what they didn't do, is believe that God will take us all the way in. Well, we started to look at uh, this last part of Chapter 4 of Hebrews, and we saw that Jesus was our great High priest, and what's the significance of that? Yes, it's the idea of high priest, and interestingly, it is only in Hebrews that this idea of high priest that comes up, and and the kind of the connection with the high priest in the Old Testament uh, with Jesus. Uh, it's only in Hebrews that it comes, but it's it's quite an interesting kind of thing uh, that the high priest was one was the one that advocated for the people, they represented the people. Uh, to God, but they also represented God to the people as well. And here, this idea of Jesus being that high priest is being explored. And the high priest, of course, went in on the Day of Atonement and performed the the, the enactment of uh, atonement, didn't he, and, and sprinkled blood in certain places in the Holy of Holies. How does Jesus fulfill that picture? Well, what we have here, and it kind of comes up uh, through chapter four, at the end of chapter four and five, is that Jesus offers himself as the sacrifice, uh, the, the, the sacrifice that the high priest offered him to do every year. Uh, but here Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice once and for all, not for his own sin, but for the sin of the people. And where does he offer that sacrifices? sacrifice? He offers, offers it in the temple, but not the temple on earth, a temple in heaven. Mm. The writer to Hebrews talked about us finding rest. How can we find rest in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I think Hebrews is pretty uh, clear on that in saying, come and believe. Come and believe that he has taken us all the way to the Father, that he has atoned for our sin. Uh, that's not a, a kind of a, a very pretty thing to talk about these days, but uh, it is what the Bible talks about, that Jesus mean, has when... actually dealt. When you say atonement, what do you mean? I mean that, that he's actually dealt with our sin, that he's paid a penalty, uh, and that he has restored our relationship with God the Father. How did Jesus atone for our sin, Rito? What actually happened on the cross? That's a complicated, <laughs> it's potentially a very complicated uh, thing to talk about, but kind of simply, it's that we deserve death, and he took on that death uh, our sin, which was really trying to usurp God's rule, uh, was deserved punishment and des deserved hell. And that's what Jesus took on himself. He took on all of the sin, uh, all of that punishment uh, for the whole world onto himself. And therefore he was punished as our substitute, presumably. 
Yes. So he dies in our place, we might say. And so why did Jesus have to die then? Well, some people kind of say, why, why can't God just forgive? That, that kind of sounds nice, doesn't it? And just kind of, he could just forgive us. That's it. That, that would be lovely. Uh, but when you think about it, what type of justice would that be? If you have a judge who, uh, someone who's done something terrible uh, and they come before the judge and the ju- judge just says, well, you're forgiven. That's okay. You just go off. What would we kind of think about that judge? There's no judge at all. It's, it's not justice for that to happen. And so the, the interesting thing, though, is not that God kind of can't just forgive. He, it, it's that he upholds his justice, uh, but by pouring out his, his wrath, where does he pour it out on, onto? He pours it onto himself. And this is a thing that we kind of forget is that kind of God kind of does just forgive by taking on the punishment himself. You've written, I think, that uh, or said that chapters 4 and 5 of Hebrews show us the Lord Jesus full on. What do you mean by that? We see everything that he does. We see who he is. We see the beauty of who he is. Uh, we see the, the glory of who he is. And really, we're getting into the nitty-gritty of what he has done. Well, let's come on and read this, uh, the first bit of the passage we're going to be looking at today. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. To 510. We actually talked a little bit about uh, verse 14 last time, but I'll just reread this chunk. It's fabulous. One of my favorite passages. Since verse 14 of chapter 4, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, what is that telling us about the Lord Jesus Christ, Rito? It's one of the, I think, one of the greatest passages in Scripture, isn't it? Particularly mm. that, that verse 16. Uh, but it tells us two things. Firstly, it tells us what, sorry, who Jesus is, uh, that he is a high priest, that he is um kind of a high priest who's able to sympathize with us in that he is tempted in every way. He knows what it is to be tempted. He knows all about temptation. But verse 15 is the important, at the end of 15 is very important, yet without sin. So he has to be made as a human. He is a human being, uh, just like you and me, but he's able to walk through life uh, and being tempted in every, uh, every way, but he doesn't sin. People often think that uh, temptation and sin kind of have to go together, that you could only be tempted if you're a sinner. But this isn't true, that Jesus is tempted in every single way that we are. And that's why he can sympathize with us, because he knows what it is like to have to kind of withstand temptation, whether that's temptation to not trust God, that's temptation to do what I want to do or to please myself. He knows all about that. So that's the first thing. The second thing is it tells us the consequence or the, or, or the, the outcome of what he's done in 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, that he takes us all the way there in our time of need, whether that our time of need is in temptation or our time of need is in sin. He takes us all the way there. How did Jesus experience temptation then? It's a very good uh, question that 
Jesus, what, well, it's really understanding what is temptation. Temptation is saying, I want to do what I, it is about saying, hey, go and do what you want to do and you don't need to trust God. You don't need to do what God wants you to do. Jesus experienced that all of the time, that people and uh, he's, he's are kind of pushing Jesus to, to be the king that he that kind of they want him to be. You've got Satan tempting him to say, "Hey, come and come and rule the world in the way that you want to rule." Uh, but what does he do? He constantly pushes back against that. Now his temptation may not look exactly the same in the sense of was he tempted to to do exactly what you were tempted to do, but it is the same in scope in that his temptations, his temptation was to constantly. Uh, go and rule and disobey God uh, when you know, you know we have the same temptation. It just looks slightly different. Yeah. How did Jesus overcome temptation then? And how can we overcome temptation? C.S. Lewis talks uh, about this in, in a beautiful way. He t- talks about uh, that Jesus is, is able to o- overcome it, or he does overcome it because he's able to keep walking through. He through the wind, he, Lewis talks about, you know, if it's, if it's a very windy day uh, and you keep walking through the wind, uh, you, you don't know if you just give it up and lie down. You don't know what that temptation and how difficult it's going to be uh, later on. Uh, but because Jesus is able to continue to, to walk through that wind, and how does he do it? He keeps entrusting himself to the Father. And we're going to see this in the next little bit, but he keeps entrusting himself to the Father. He keeps... Uh, praying to the Father uh, in those times, uh, and he's able to overcome them. I don't know how he overcomes them, particularly uh, just before the cross. You have the weight of the world on Jesus' shoulders, uh, and there's such pressure on him to easily just turn around and say, no, I'm not going to do this. Uh, But he doesn't. I don't know how he's able to do that, but he does do that. Uh, And that's what we need to look to, too, when we are tempted, when we want to sin, uh, in in any way, not just little things, but big things as well. We need to look to him and look at the uh, his submission to the Father, and we need to do likewise. In what sense, then, is the Lord Jesus the true human? In what sense does he do what we can't do and what Adam didn't do or anybody else in, in the Old Covenant couldn't manage to do? You've got that repeated pattern throughout the whole Bible, don't we, of uh, kind of people given promises or given kind of high, we have these high expectations. And then the very next thing they do, what do they do? They go and sin, right? They don't trust God in the very next thing. You've got that with Adam and Eve. You've got that with Abraham. You've even got it with Israel as they uh, come up to, uh, they, they're given the covenant, they're given the Ten Commandments. And what are they off doing? Kind of the the rest of Israel is kind of going and, and uh, having a big party and kind of doing whatever they like. Uh, but you have Jesus facing that temptation uh, and doing what we all should do. So Jesus is the true human in the sense that he obeys God and he worships God his whole life uh, and does what we all should do. And so how can Jesus, our great high priest, then sympathize with us? Is it because he did take on human form? Yes, this is kind of an old saying, which I think is a good saying, is that Jesus is the divine uh, to the human and human to the divine. So in the sense of he, re- he, he shows us what God is like uh, to, to us and he, and, and he represents humanity uh, to, to the Father and, or to the whole Godhead, really. Uh, and 
it's quite an important thing to understand is is that if Jesus isn't fully human, well then he can't he can't atone for us. It just doesn't work. Verse 16, I love verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So how do we, it always reminds me of that verse from uh, the Wesley in him, and can it be, bold I approach the eternal throne to claim the crown through Christ's name. Wonderful stuff. So how do we gain access then to God's throne room? Well, it has to be through Jesus, doesn't it? It can't be any other way. Uh, and again, we saw last week, and uh, it's quite, quite simple. I think it's true belief. It's trusting that Jesus can take us all the way in there. Uh, the thing that I find interesting is there in there is the the confidence. Let us then, with confidence, draw near. It's, it's kind of we're, we're talking about sin and temptation here, and then we're we're talking about come with confidence to God. It's kind of like, wouldn't you want to run the other way? Or yeah, I want to run the other way when when I know I've, I've been disobedient. Uh, but here it's, it says the opposite, come with confidence. For many people, that would be astonishing that we could feel confident in our salvation. Well, hopefully it's astonishing to all of us, but I think you're right, though, that, that even the, the concept itself is so foreign to so, to, so, even to so many Christians. And I think this is something we need to recover, don't you think, Brent, in the, the, mm. the confidence that we have in coming to Jesus or to coming to the Father. Yes, and it's really because of the atonement and what we were talking about earlier, that this great, what we call the penal substitution, that Jesus takes upon uh, himself our sin, and that, as Paul writes, uh, his righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, is imputed or given to us. It's like a kind of legal legal transaction, isn't it? And so we receive Christ's righteousness, and he takes upon himself our sin, which is mind-blowing, really. Oh, it is totally, and it's not limited to... to uh the kind of the substitution or the legal kind of framework it's not limited to that but it does include that as well doesn't it yeah it does very much so yeah so how does jesus our great high priest advocate on our behalf then because this is an interesting concept as well that he advocates for us well what what is an advocate an advocate is someone who kind of stands uh kind of with you and this is what jesus does he stands with you arguing for arguing your case kind of for you and so this is what Jesus can do. He can constantly advocate for us. Now, the weird thing is that, you know, what case do we have before God, really, before the Father? We, we've got no case at all. Uh, and so he's advocating in the sense of saying, hey, look at me. Look at what I've done. I've paid for their sin. And so he is a good advocate in that, that kind of sense that he doesn't, he doesn't even have to argue a case for us. The case that we would have would be, hey, look, you sinned and you deserve death, and that would be the end of it. Uh, but because he is advocating for us on our behalf, he can point it all to him and say, I've done it. I've, I've died on, in their behalf, uh, and there's nothing else that needs to be done. Mm. Let's come on to chapter 5 and look at verses 1 to 3. And we really get into this, the theology, the meat of this. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of uh, the men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. So in what sense is the writer to Hebrews saying that the high priest was just an ordinary person? They, they totally were an ordinary person. When we think of 
when I think of someone who would be a high priest, I think of someone who's holy and religious and you know, kind of a, some kind of, kind of a, an amazing person. But here religious we're being Superman. told that mm, a religious Superman. Exa- exactly. And, uh, but what they're saying is no, no that they, they weren't. Uh, they would, and of course, they, they, the people that were chosen as high priests, they, they were usually godly people of course, but they still had to atone for their own sin. There was still the problem of sin that, that kept cropping up. And this is what you get through the whole Old Testament, that this, this huge kind of uh, span of time is uh, humanity's sin just cannot be dealt with. Even with a good high priest, they still even have to atone for their own sin. Well, let's come on to verses 4 to 6 of chapter 5. He carries on. And no one takes this honor for himself, but uh, only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So how was Jesus then selected by God to be a high priest? Well, he shouldn't be because he's not in the order of Aaron. And so there was this, if he, to be a priest, you had to be a descendant of Aaron, which was a descendant of Levi. Uh, and particularly to be a high priest, you had to be a specifically a, a descendant of Aaron. Uh, and so he, he shouldn't be a high priest. And, and it kind of seems like a scandal. Uh, and this is something that gets picked up in Chapter 7, that that he, he is still a priest uh, but in, in a different order, the order of Melchizedek, because the order of the Levites, it didn't work. Their sacrifices just could go on forever, and it could never actually make atonement for sin. So we needed a different high priest. We still needed a high priest, uh, but a different high priest. And, and this high priest had to come uh, through a different line, a different, a different type of kind of priestly order. Yeah, it says that Jesus was a great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, who was Melchizedek? He pops up once in the Old Testament. You think, hey, this is the most random kind of guy you would you would pick. Uh, but and this is something, as I said, you know, it gets picked up more thoroughly in chapter seven. But but he's this one guy who who he meets Abraham uh, in in the middle of Genesis, and you just got he kind of just he as Abraham is kind of coming back from war, he meets this Melchizedek, and Abraham gives him a tenth of his plunder. Uh, and they, interestingly, they share uh, some some wine and some bread together. It was kind of mm. just seems a bit odd, doesn't it? Mm. Uh, but but also he's he's called a priest uh, of the God Most High, and so he's this guy who who just kind of pops up once, very very briefly. Uh, and whether this is a bit referring to uh, the right of Hebrews is taking him as an analogy for the type of high priest he is. Uh, or whether he is just, he is actually, that Jesus is actually maybe showing up as Melchizedek. We're not 100% sure of, of how that works, but it's there and it's picked up in the psalm. This is a, a quote, verse 6 is a quote uh, from Psalm 110, uh, which is a prophetic psalm. Uh, and uh, he, he gets, so he, he appears once in Genesis, very briefly mentioned in, in one of the psalms, uh, and then the writer of Hebrews picks up on this idea and, and really runs with it. And I think it's a lot of, um, there's, a, there's a huge gem here that they've uncovered. Uh, coming on to verses 7 to 10, 
Uh, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Rita, this this puzzles me. Why, in what sense, did Jesus have to be perfected? Isn't wasn't he perfect already? Yeah, yeah, it's a very interesting thing, isn't it? Uh, and it's one of the the big kind of the, in in Hebrews, you do have some of these issues that kind of pop up. Uh, but when you when you drill down into it, they kind of start to make sense. It's not being made perfect uh, in the sense that there was something wrong with him. Uh, and then that has to kind of get worked out. And so he's he's being kind of made to be something different to what he already is. It's it's more about he needs to be proven for who he who really is. And so say if I if I say I'm I'm the greatest at a, some type of sport, I'm not sure what sport you know that would be. Okay. Um, pretty hopeless. Well, I would love to be, you know, kind of the best bowler in the world. I, you know, kind of you know, if I was, uh, you know, kind of in the line of Glenn McGrath or, you know, kind of a lot of the the latest Kiwi bowlers, you know, if I said I was the greatest, you know, kind of, I'd actually have to prove myself, wouldn't I? I actually need to get out there and play some tests and, you know, kind of actually, actually, you know, take a few wickets to be the greatest. So why is Jesus then able to come alongside us in our weakness? How does the writer explain that he's able to come alongside us in our weakness? Because... He knows exactly what it is like to face temptation. He knows exactly what it is uh, to face suffering. And he is a human being. If he wasn't a human being, then he would have no idea of what it would look like uh, to, to go through what we have to go through. But here it is saying, no, he is a human being uh, and he has gone through exactly what we have got, what we go through. And so because of that, he is able to come alongside of us uh, and sympathize with us and empathize with us too. So how can, as we come to the conclusion, how can Jesus help us then with our sin? He knows what it is about. Now, he hasn't sinned, uh, but that gives him the perfect, I think, it gives him uh, kind of the perfect way of being showing us what it looks like not to sin. Isn't it better to have someone who has walked through temptation, who has suffered and gone through hardship, and trusted in God rather than someone who has gone through those things and hasn't trusted in God. Here we have someone who doesn't kind of set themselves out to be, um, you know, someone who who is free from suffering or free from, from temptation. It's actually someone who has experienced those things but still trusted in God. And that's where I think Jesus, we can get alongside of Jesus or Jesus can get alongside of us. We can look to him and say, Okay, I can, I can if I trust in you, and I can see how you went through it, and you went through it into even in a more immense way than any of us will ever have to go through. That's comforting. And, and the fact that we can we, ne- we can never stop coming to Jesus. We can keep coming to Jesus as our great High Priest because He's done it for us. He's atoned for our sin. Yeah, and I think this is the the thing that we often think is, oh, you know, I've, I've been. I, have, I haven't prayed, or I haven't done this, or I haven't done that, and Jesus is going to reject me. But the opposite is true, is that in those times where we feel like we are rejecting Jesus, that's actually the time where he wants, 
he's drawing nearer and nearer to us and bringing us out of that that kind of those feelings uh, and drawing us closer to him all right thank you rito uh, once again, uh, thanks to the Reverend Ian Reid, Rido of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston, North New Zealand. Uh, next time, Rido, we're going to come on and talk about the end of uh, the end of chapter five, uh, from verse eleven, and chapter six, which is uh, the co- really controversial chapter of Hebrews. So we hope you can join us then. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com. Godstory Podcast.